We're going to be in Matthew today. It has nothing to do with that other than this is also a true story, and that's a true story, so there's a connection. I'll have at least one more for you, I promise, by the end. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 2. Let me pray, and then we'll jump in with this telling. Jesus, I thank you so much for the gift of this family, uh, the way that you have knit us together into a community of close friends and acquaintances together to sit at your feet and learn of the beauty of your grace is amazing. God, to hear voices from sisters and brothers scattered throughout the city on a daily basis, coming back together to lift you high is such a gift. To consider the possibilities of what it could look like if artists across this community uh, were able to put together images that help to describe the journey that you have us on, the journey that you've had your people on for thousands of years, God, the history of humanity, we're grateful. And so as we sit together for these next few minutes, would the words of your scripture bring it life? I think about what Ben just shared, that he was able to enter into the joy of knowing you through the beauty of your word. God, there's power, it's living, it's active. Would we receive it as such? For my friends that may have heard this story a few times, would you keep them attentive and by the power of your spirit, give them fresh insight? Uh, for people who this is a brand new story, and would you allow this to take root? And God, would we see you a little bit more clearly and be a little bit more equipped to be faithfully take up our role in your story because of this time here that you spend with us. And we ask this in your name, Jesus, by the power of your spirit, amen, amen. So this scene must have been an absolute circus. I can't imagine what Bethlehem version of the Nextdoor app was looking like while this was all unfolding. Like, you think it's crazy when a car gets broken into two stories, like two neighborhoods down, right? Or somebody's cat is missing and the amount of posts that gets. Uh, imagine with me that a caravan of Parisian magi are coming through the streets of your small town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem is not a booming metropolis. Apache Junction probably makes it look even smaller. It's a little town of Bethlehem, as it were. Not many people there. Jesus and his family are. And the neighbors are starting to buzz. They're starting to wonder what is taking place. Uh, how are these people wandering our streets? What are they here for? Did the king send them? Did the prince send them? What are they looking for? And they settle up at a pretty mundane home. Looks just like every other home. But the expression on the Magi's face looked like absolute wonder and delight. It looked giddy almost. Could it really be that they were there? The noise passed from camel to camel to camel back. Slow down, slow down, slow down. I think we're there. Is it this one? Is it that one? I'm not sure. Looking around. Maybe asking neighbors. Maybe not because it seemed too crazy. But as they came to rest in front of the house where a little toddler was clinging to the leg of his mother, they burst open the doors with absolute, infinite gladness and bowed down. Let's read the words of Jesus as he tells that same story through the author, Matthew. Matthew 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. 
and all of Jerusalem with him. When they had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and as soon as you find him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to a house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. And then they opened their treasure and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Uh, This is the word of God. Uh, This story might be one of the familiar ones that we come across in the telling of the Gospels. Uh, This story, though, is different than the one. You might be asking, where's the shepherds? Where's the sheep? Where's the manger? Uh, That's Luke, and it's another telling of the story. You say, wait a second, this sounds very, very different than the first Christmas. Uh, This one probably took place when the child was no longer an infant but had grown up a little bit. So they're not counter stories. If you're one of those people, you're like, see, I knew we couldn't trust the Christmas thing. No shepherds, no angels, no little, you know, silent night, holy night, baby being born. We got none of that. Is this really a real account? It absolutely is. He's just giving an account probably from a few years later or a few months later. As we jump into the text, though, I don't want us to miss this. This is going to summarize uh, the last two weeks of teaching that we've done in Matthew. And so the story of Jesus is both the story of the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel through Abraham, David, and the prophets. It is the telling of that story and the fulfillment of the longing of all human hope for salvation. This story is massive. Readers of Matthew are to be confronted with the reality that Jesus is the true and greater Moses, providing a true and greater exodus for God's people. The invitation for everyone who comes encounter with this narrative is to obediently follow Jesus as king. It's not to give us an alternative to Santa Claus or Elf on a Shelf. Uh, It's not to give us an option that's religious that maybe will help to control some of your behaviors. It is a narrative of the entire true story of the world and its hero in Jesus. It's decidedly a Jewish story, but it's for all people. So let's jump in. I just want to explain a few of the verses, uh, and then I think there's something that Jesus has for us today, uh, and we'll walk through it just together. So this story takes place, and this is after Jesus was born in Bethlehem and Judah, Judea in the time of King Herod. So if you're a history buff, this is Herod the Great, who probably, most likely, most people would say died 
in 4 BC. And so this would be helping us to find out where the timeline falls with scripture. Uh, So this is Herod the Great. He's a real king. He really lived. He really ruled. Uh, We can look at the timeline for these events and say, all right, this is who this was in real history. Remember, this isn't just a fictional fairy tale. We should be able to fact check much of what's said through the accounts of Matthew because he's telling a story of history. And so Herod's king, and he's on the throne, and you can imagine uh, these magi come from the east, come to Jerusalem, which is the capital city, because if you're looking for a king to be born, where do you often show up? In the capital, right? You're looking for a royal palace. You're trying to figure out. uh, These guys say, we saw a star in the east. Like, we we looked up, we saw a star. These were Persian, the magi word, like magicians, or uh, they were people that were very into astrology. And so often in their worldview, when you see something magnificent happening in the heavens, something is also magnificent happening on earth. Or vice versa. If something monumental is happening on earth, then it will probably be reflected in the fabric of creation. These men, most likely, for all intents and purposes, were not following the true and living God, but he was still revealing himself to them. And so they see this. And they come to Jerusalem, which is the capital city, to say, all right, where's the king? Their first question, where is the king of the Jews? And at this, Herod is what? troubled. I mean, if you're the reigning ruler and you hear, hey, we're here with this big caravan of people, uh, they didn't just roll really deep, right? They had a, a really big squad that they would roll with to come in, to carry their stuff, to make their camp, to cook their food, to be able to go across the desert. They had all the supplies. Where's the one who's the king of the Jews? A fun fact, this phrase won't be used for the rest of Matthew until you get to the place where Jesus is about to be crucified, and they ask the same question. This is the one, the king of the Jews. And at that time, it's also a Gentile ruler who says it. And so encapsulating that the people who are outside of God's people are the first to realize and recognize who Jesus really is. It's pretty special. But we'll go back in. There's all sorts of these things with this. Um, this is what my Bible looks like around this, so you guys uh, will walk through it. I can't do the live drawing for you guys right now because... Our tech isn't up to speed. But after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, that was David's town. Do you remember David was king, uh, and there was promise that wouldn't come from his line. Jot down Micah 5, 1 through 2 was that promise that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And so during the time of King Herod, he was the great, died in 4 BC, so the story would have taken place before that, most likely. When they show up, they ask, who is the one born king of the Jews? Uh, That notes forward to Matthew 27, 45. We've seen his star when it rose and have come to worship him. In Numbers 24, 17, uh, Balaam is giving this prophecy, and there's a story being told where the promise is that the reigning and the ruler would come, and it would be marked by a star. And so Matthew knows these things, so he's layering in for people as they come encounter with this story. This is prophecy being fulfilled, events that really took place, but they herald back to events that have happened. In fact, Matthew tells a story really quickly, and then he gives a prophecy that's true. He does it five different times in this chapter. We're going to see three of them. He says, this is what happened. Now check it out. This is where it came from. This is what happened. This is where it came from. This is what happened. This is where it came from. And so when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him because if the king ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? If the king's unsettled, the people are settled. They said if he sneezed, then everybody else got killed. Like he was an angry dude and did not like to be messed with. 
And so what Matthew's showing us isn't just that Jesus was a cute little six-pound, eight-ounce baby that got wrapped in swaddling clothes, stuck in a manger while stars twinkled overhead, angels sang the hallelujah chorus, and shepherds came in with jaws dropped. He's showing us that Jesus is a political powder keg, and from the jump, his kingdom was going to collide with the kingdom of the world. He came to show at the very jump that Jesus' claim to be the true and living king means that there's other false kings who sit on thrones. And you don't get a few verses into this birth narrative without recognizing like, oh, we're going to see some tension in this story. And so he called together the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. Uh, It's funny, he doesn't say God's priests or God's teachers. He's very clear to say these are the teachers, the people's teachers, in the same way he will at the end when they call the priests and the scribes at the very end of the story in 27 as well. It's the priests of the people, not the priests of God, as if this isn't God's design and what he wants. So he calls them together, and he asks them where the Messiah was to be born, and they knew the answer, right? In Bethlehem of Judea. Like, we know where that is. And they replied, for this is what the prophet's written, and this is a mashup. Uh, for those of you that like remixes, this is Micah 5.2 and 2 Samuel 5.2. So this is two different passages brought together. But he says, but you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They're like, we know the words. And then the imagery is almost that they go like, cool. I guess it's his turn. Keep going. Like, which is wild, right? If you're a Pharisee or a scribe or a preacher, and this is like your deal, Like, this is the Messiah that you've been waiting for, and these magi show up, and they're like, hey, we heard he's born. Where's he at? The king calls you in and says, hey, where's this guy supposed to be born at? And they're like, uh, Bethlehem, we done now? Cool. And then go back to their daily business. There's nothing else mentioned about him. I would have imagined they would have been in a foot race to beat the magi there to be like, yo, is this true? But instead, just keep going. Then Herod calls the Magi back, right? And he finds them uh, the exact time. And so not just where is he, but when did this all happen? And he sends them to Bethlehem and says, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Uh, one of the best lines in Elf is when they tell Santa he sits on a throne of lies. Uh, this, it's got biblical precedent, right? Herod's sitting on there in the very first story. He's sitting on this throne of lies. He has no intention of worshiping Jesus. In fact, the next passage of scripture says that when he doesn't hear where Jesus is, he goes and kills all the kids two years and under, which probably would have been around 20 uh, because, again, Bethlehem wasn't that big of a place. But he goes and he's like, all right, well, if you're not going to tell me where he is, then I'm just going to go take all of them out and try to get rid of his competition. And so he had no intentions of worshiping. The story goes on, right? And after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it went, rose ahead went to them until it stopped over the place where the child was. I have no idea what this looks like. But can you try to imagine this scene? People always try to figure out, what was this star? Was it Halley's Comet? No, that was two years too early. Was it when these two planets aligned? Because that happened four times this one year. I have no idea. Um, But I can tell you that this must have been a pretty wild scene, that the star lining up and the Magi are able to understand this is the house in this little small town where this child is, and then they come in the door, and there it says the child is with his mother, right? Like the child's there, Jesus with Mary, And they have an overjoy. Uh, This word was, uh, what was it, deliriously happy. Their response to knowing that Jesus had been born was a delirious joy, this ridiculous happiness. 
a right response to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords coming into human history to heal and restore and reconcile and reign was ridiculously happy, deliriously joyful. And then they open up their gifts. They bow down and they worship him. Uh, this word isn't connotated like extra special spiritual. It basically means that's what you do when you saw a king. You would bow down. And it's that same word. They recognize him as a reigning king and bow down to him. It's interesting. When they get to Herod, they make no mention of bowing down. But when they stand before Jesus, even as a little child, possibly a toddler, maybe an infant still held by his mother, their response is to bow down and worship. And then they open their treasures and present them with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, there's tons of allegories around this. Is this because uh, gold's for a king, frankincense is for a deity, and myrrh is for his burial? Like there's all different ideas about why that could be. I think most people would agree. The idea is that it was re these were really, really bougie gifts. Like, these were really, really lavish gifts. Uh, they weren't just, like, the small little, oh, what do I have left? Like, oh, quick, let's, let's throw our leftover, like, I don't know, change, maybe a few gummy bears. And what do you have, a paper clip? Let's give it to him, too. Like, let's give him the stuff that we have in our pockets. They had come prepared with these lavish gifts to give to Jesus. And then in a really short statement, it says, having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to the, their country by another route. So the story has a lot, doesn't it? Like there's layers upon layers upon layers of this. I know people uh, love to go to Reddit and uh, have all sorts of wild backstories that go into any movie you watch, especially the Star Wars crew, especially the Marvel crew. Like the DC, I guess they get a little bit less like playtime, but some people still love them most. Um, but all these different characters or stories that we go to, they all have these layers and nuances that you can look at the first reading and you can be like, that was pretty amazing. But then you go back with some more information and you're like, oh my goodness, all that was taking place. This birth narrative of Jesus is one of those things. And while all that is true, and I want you to see all that, that in the very beginning, Jesus is not just the king of the Jews, but the king of all people. God's heart was not just to rescue those that we would deem insiders, but the first people we see worshiping in Matthew were outsiders, those you wouldn't expect to be a part of the story. I mean, these were maybe sorcerers, definitely magicians, coming out of a Far Eastern context with very little knowledge about who God was. They didn't even know the book to know where Jesus would have been born. Otherwise, they would never have to ask. But those are the first people that we see worshiping, which is amazing. Here's what I want you to do. Uh, turn to a few people around you. I have a lot of notes up here. Some of you, I see you guys jotting down notes as you go. Uh, would you just turn to a few people around you? What's just one thing about this story so far that caught your attention? So every text, every single story that we will engage with as we walk through Matthew and as you walk through your Bible is meant to point us to Jesus in that we say it's messianic. Uh, it points to Jesus as the Messiah, the anointed one, the ruler, the one who reigns, the long-awaited promised rescuer of the story of God. And every story is also missional. That means it's meant to equip us to take up our role in God's story. We're not supposed to just hear it and then walk away from it. That's the difference between the DC, the Marvel, and the Star Wars, right? You enter into it for a short minute or 
let's be honest, four hours of your life to watch one of those suckers, uh, and then you get to walk back out of it and you go about your day. When you hear these stories of Jesus, they're not meant to be stories that you listen to and then walk away from, but that you live the rest of your life shaped by. And so when we come to the text, we ask, what does this teach me about Jesus? It's incredible. He's the long-awaited Messiah, prophesied about that came in due time in all the ways it was promised that he would be. Mind-blowing. And it's also meant to help shape our lives. And so one of the questions that I, I wanted us to think through, because this is the one that popped out to me as I sat with this story this week, and we get a few different options, but how do we respond to the birth of Jesus? And not just the, the idea of the story, but the fact that Jesus comes and claims to be the king, the Messiah, the rescuer, the savior, the only one who is able to make you right with the father and heal what is truly broken inside of you. The only one who's going to be able to form together a people, a community, in a way that is healthy and points to God. And the only one who's able to bring heaven and earth back together again. For God to dwell with his people forever. To heal what's broken and fractured in creation ultimately. Like what do we do with the arrival of that one? And in this story, we get three different characters who give us three different options. When we see how Herod approaches this news that a king has been born, it says he's troubled, he's deeply troubled, he became unsettled, he was afraid. Because the arrival of the new king meant that the old king was done. Because the arrival of a new one who was coming to announce good news, this is what the world should be like. Good news, this is how you can be made whole. Good news, I'm the one holding it all together, not the puppet that sits in Jerusalem named Herod. And so Herod's response to that, he doesn't hear this royal announcement that we all say, that's gospel, that's good news. In fact, it inspires a deep-seated fear because if the new king of beauty and justice and truth has arrived, the old king who reigns with violence and evil and betrayal is being pushed out. And you're like, well, I don't have that kind of authority. Like, like that's not me. I don't sit on a throne. Uh, let me ask this question. When it's announced that Jesus is Lord, does that raise fear in your life because you know there are things that are outside of his kingdom agenda that you really enjoy and want to participate in? Like with the arrival of Jesus and the announcement that, that Jesus, the one who is holy, the one who is true, the one that is beautiful, the one who rescues and redeems and put things back together, the one who does not have a space for when humans use each other, when they manipulate each other, when they have unjust systems, with those that are able to elevate themselves on the back of others, that means that that's going out. Does that raise fear in our lives? Because we say, what does that mean for me? Like, like I like this other stuff. Like, I want to be the center of my own kingdom. And if Jesus is pushing me to the margins, what does that mean for these things that I cling so tightly to? Maybe we've built our identity on. Remember, whatever is central to us is the thing that we worship and trust the most. For some of us, it's a relationship. For some of it's an activity. For some of us, it can be our possessions and the things that we accumulate. 
We all love to build our kingdom on something, and very often it's something that we can control or manage or manipulate or be in charge of. But when Jesus shows up and he says, I'm actually the center, the one that you should build on, the one that you should orient around, the one who defines what is good, right, and beautiful, and that's the best possible way for you to live. I don't want us to bypass and say, we would never feel fear at that. How many conversations I've had with people that say, I don't know if I fully submit to Jesus as Lord, what that means for life, and that brings fear. We can admit that. It's not the place to be in the story where you want to end up, but it'd be great to admit it if it's true. Are there things that we would rather worship than Jesus? So when Jesus shows up and attacks and says, I want you to orient all of your life, all of your life, your identity, your finances, your geography, your sexuality, the way that you approach worldviews and politics, the way that you approach how you worship, what you worship, I want all that to be defined by me. Does that raise some fear? A second response that we saw in the story was the people, scribes, and the Pharisees. It was an apathy. Like, like I tried to wrap my head around this. I know that like Matthew's conserving words. Otherwise, he'd have a really, really long book, and it would never make it on a scroll. I'm trying to give the benefit of the doubt to these people whose job was very much like mine to announce, hey, this is what God desires for humanity. This is what he wants from his people. This is what his word means in different places. So they pull those people together in the presence of these magi who are super convinced that just a few towns over, that Messiah had been born, and they've taken a massive trip to get there. The king pulls you in, and you're all sitting around, whatever that looks like, and he goes, yo, do you guys know anything about this Messiah, dude? And they're like, oh, yeah, people have been longing for him for hundreds of years. God hasn't said anything. We've been waiting for that day. And you're like, oh, and these guys say that it's here now. Do you know where that's supposed to be? Yeah, it's in Bethlehem. We even know the text. We even know the verse. How many of you knew Malachi 2, Malachi 5, Malachi 2? What did he even say? These guys could spit it out. We know that one. And they're like, we done yet? Cool, let's go on. We're so familiar with the story and we're so used to being disappointed uh, and we don't really think that God's coming or maybe we've just gotten so comfortable in the way things are in our own religious experience and the way that we have our identity based in this system that exists. We really don't want the disruption. So if you're done... With this whole thing, we would just, that apathy, which is so dangerous for people when they've been immersed in the story of God for a long period of time. Because what can slowly happen to our souls is we get so used to hearing good news that it becomes boring. We forget what it was like to see with wonder the star whatever that moment was in our life when we recognize that Jesus was who he says he was. He's the reigning, ruling king, and he invites us to participate in kingdom life. He forgives and heals and redeems, and we go, oh my goodness, that's for me? I'm welcome? If you follow Jesus, there was a moment where explosive joy was the response to hearing Jesus saved you. But for us sometimes, we can hear it and be like, man, Taco Chiwas does sound good. Like, I don't want to have to read about these stories. I kind of already know them, and I'd rather read something else. I don't want to have this actually define what I do and don't watch on TV. Like, should my Netflix queue be moderated by what Jesus says? Most of Christianity today would say, no, it's art. Do what you want. That's your business. You're going to have a really hard time when you hit the Sermon on the Mount if that's your perspective. And I pray 
that in our study, every one of us, in our study of Matthew, every one of us finds the pockets of apathy that are there and those bubbles just burst and Jesus gets all up in our business in the best possible way. That's a prayer. Because we can respond to the announcement of the royal reign of Jesus and just be like, oh, I get it. That's cool. I know the facts. I know the story. I can even give you the reference. But are our emotions, are we stirred up? Is this actually what our lives are built on? Or is that just some side thing that we do when we're called in to give answers? Third response, they're not all bad. And we see it from the most unlikely characters in the story. Joyful worship. Joyful worship. In the story, we can see they worshiped because they entered in that, that word, that ridiculous or excessive joy that they had. It's not just joy, but there's a prefix on it that means excessive joy. God is here. He reigns. He rules. Nothing can shape that. This, this king has been born. And we even look further in the story. He lived. He announced good news. He died. He rose again. All that is secure. That should do something to us that our circumstances can't unsettle. Joy in a response to Jesus. Joy as a fruit of the spirit of Jesus being planted in us. And then worship, which wasn't just marked by the fact that they got down in front of a toddler. Like, how creeped out would you be if I showed up at the Hamilton's house, you guys are all there for a birthday party, uh, and Eleanor's sitting there in Sarah's arms, and I just walk in, and I'm like, <laughs> like, you'd be like, what is going wrong? What's wrong with this, right? They do that, Mark, but then they also go all out in giving of their, accept, like, out of an abundance, say, here's lavish gifts for this king. It costs them something, not just the long journey, not just the sake of maybe being embarrassed and looking a little foolish, because worship doesn't ask, do I look silly? It asks, is he worthy? And then we just do whatever the response is. And it came out of a place where it cost them greatly personally. Gold was expensive no matter who you were. Frankincense matters a lot and is used in worship no matter who you were. Myrrh was costly no matter who you were. And they said, no, for this king, what else would I do but give everything I have? Which wasn't just a posture of the body, but a posture of their wallet as well. And we're like, man, I knew this. No, these pieces are connected for us. We give money to what we hold most valuable, every single one of us. If it's our entertainment, check out your entertainment bill. That's what means the most and gives you the most comfort. Is it your, like, what are these things? For these guys, directly tied. And Jesus is coming and confronting from the very jump. From the very jump. My kingdom looks drastically different. But who doesn't want to be the joyful worshiper instead of the stodgy old scribe or the murderous king? Look what my kingdom brings. It's good news of great joy for all people which is the exact same words that are used in Luke. It's good news of great joy for all people. As we come towards the landing, I wanted to give us just a few minutes to think through this and ask the question for yourselves. Is your discipleship marked by apathy, fear, or joyful worship this morning? Like, what do you feel? I say discipleship, that's the process of following Jesus and leading other people to do the same. Uh, is that marked by joyful worship? Or if you're honest, I'm afraid of what that means if I follow Jesus. Be honest with that. Take it to him. He can handle it. Apathy. Honestly, I don't really care. That is a dangerous place to be 
And my invitation is there's so much more held in the way of Jesus than having to live in indifference or apathy. But if that's where you are, locate that and be honest about it. Don't fake it. Because Jesus will enter into those spaces with you. Which one's it more marked by? I'd encourage you to ask the question, what does sacrificial worship look like for you? It is obediently... Uh, remember, Matthew's trying to shape a kingdom community as he writes this. He wants the people asking, what does it look like for us to be a community marked by sacrificial, joyful worship? Like, what if our everyday experiences were modeled after the Magi more than the others in the story? And at the very end of the story, the Magi uh, have a dream, and they redirect their next steps based on what they hear. Instead of going back to Herod, they go a different route. And maybe a question for you to consider today is, are you listening for God's voice for the next step as you follow Jesus? Or do you feel like your course is pretty well marked and you know what you're doing next? I would encourage you, one of the invitations of Christmas is that God comes in the most unexpected and beautiful ways to produce a world which none of us could have imagined, a rescue which we only dreamed of. And he invites us to participate in that kingdom of beauty and truth and justice today and for those that lean back and be like that's cool for all the people who have it together i'm kind of on the outside of that though what am i supposed to do remember that the people in the story that matthew's saying if you're going to model after somebody in the story let it be those who were far off but who were mesmerized and in wonder at the glory of jesus they start the story far off and they enter it, and we're still sharing their story today as a model for how we ought to enter into the biblical story. How incredible is that? No one is so far gone. When God calls you to himself, the invitation is to respond. We'd have no story if the Magi saw the star and said, huh, that's a really long trip. <laughs> I'm not doing that. I live in Persia. Like, that's Israel. Forget that. That's really far. But because they were obedient, we get to look and gaze and wonder the story of Jesus and even wonder what does it look like to be marked by that same sacrificial, joyful worship. I'm going to give us a few seconds. If you want to bow your heads, you can. You're not going to have to raise your hands or anything. If you want to look up there at one of those questions and let it settle in, I'll send this out to us. That way you guys don't have to jot all the words down. But we just sit with this for a moment while we still have it calm and see what the Spirit might be saying to you. Jesus, where our lives are marked by fear, would you stir up a kingdom-centered faith? Allow us to release our grip on the things that promised to fulfill but never can. And would we not be marked by fear of what we might lose, but faith in your promises of all that you give? And Jesus, where we have apathy, would you disrupt us? Would you startle us? Would you mesmerize us with grace? Would you cause uh, that fruit of the spirit of joy to be produced? 
Uh, would we be willing to walk away from the things that are robbing us of our joy and numbing us to your grace and numbing us to the goodness of your kingdom and causing us to be blind to the ways that you're working around us? Would you disrupt those things and replace that apathy with what we long for, a joy-filled worship of you, an inward drive and desire to know you and make you known to others. God, for my friends that are here that are wrestling through, if they even want to believe this or if this is really real, uh, Jesus, would you speak to them? Not because my words are going through a microphone, but because you've created them, knit them, and you long to have them a part of your family as well. And whatever means that star might be to draw those that far from you to the foot of worship, would you do that? And we ask all these things in your name, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.